again. Uh, and this is our last lecture on Job online because of the snow day. Let's uh, say a prayer. Father in heaven, help us be wise, even though this is now some distance between the students and me. Uh, electronically, help that we will be united in your service and in the uh, dedication to reading your word righteously and well and wisely. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we ended by talking about how Elihu, uh, though he doesn't have any references between himself, uh, between his section and any other section of the book of Job, he certainly could have been stuck in, but that's the, uh, uh, the view of the uh, uh, fictionalists, and if it's not fiction, how come? Well, he's a kid, and so nobody has to talk to him or about him. He's allowed by grace to speak, even though he doesn't have the status to do it. That's the other theory, anyway. What's his message? His message is that Job is wrong. Now everybody's wrong. He goes against. He goes up uh, uh, against the uh, the comforters too. But he says that Job is wrong because he's not justifying God. We ended there too. If you remember, what's our what's our job as Christians? Not primarily to go to heaven. No. Um, not to be blessed. No. Our fundamental job is to vindicate the character of God. That's it. And Job has been so self-centered, understandably so, but again, this is a young man. Young men tend to be very critical of older people. Um, so he doesn't, he doesn't like that. You've, you have not been, you, nobody can be righteous before the Lord, he says. And he doesn't understand how Job is justifying himself instead of God. He doesn't understand himself. Remember early on, <clears throat> the Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Says Job, in all this did not Job sin with his lips. Early, God calls him righteous. It is possible to be perfect. Uh, Elihu doesn't see that as clearly. Um, the good people still suffer. Uh, there's a wonderful story about a lady who ran a Christian kitchen, Christian uh, restaurant, and who would constantly be saying, praise the Lord. And one day, uh, she had a whole stack of dishes, and she's walking along, and soapy hands and drops the dishes and everybody stopped and listened sure enough her first word was praise the Lord she's not far from the kingdom is she in everything says St. Paul give thanks why because that justifies vindicates the character of God well is it okay to say what we don't feel I said before, we can't lie to God. Is it, is it okay to obey, even to say what we don't feel? Did she feel at that moment the disappointment? I don't know, possibly, but she still said, praise the Lord. That's not a lie. That's an understanding that even if we don't feel like it, God is to be praised. Good people do suffer, don't they? But in the midst of that suffering, we have no excuse for not saying, praise the Lord. It's a hard thing 
but under grace, possible, and in fact even natural. Does it feel natural now? No. But remember, everything that's natural is not, is not easy. If you look at a little child learning to, to walk, what does it feel like? It's natural for the kid to walk. It's built in. He's going to want to walk. And he does. But he has to work at it. It's hard to learn to walk when you have a kid. Watch him. So much. Tries to get up. Gets up on all fours. Crawls away. Tries to get up. Boom. Gets up again. Tries it again. Doesn't have very far to fall. That's good. But the kid has to work at what's natural. We need to work at what's natural. Praise the Lord. Does it come easy? No. But finally, for a Christian, it's the end point. I need to be striving for it. Remember Gethsemane. Jesus didn't feel like going to the cross. He said, what, three times? If, it, if, it, if this can't... Please don't make this happen. But then he said, not my will, but thine be done. Doing what you know you should do saying what you know you should say even when you don't feel like it it's not lying it is if you mean it hypocritically if you're pretending in front of people that you're feeling as you don't but when you're talking to god you can say i don't feel like praising you right now father help me do that help me say praise the lord and mean it that's sanctification the work the work of a lifetime so Elihu was right but he needs one more thing he needs praise the Lord uh, that, that, uh, that he's right that Job needs one more thing Christ calls us to come out of ourselves it's part of the big lesson of the book of Job so then Elihu Elihu is finished and Job and the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind. Why a whirlwind? What's happening with this whirlwind business? Well, what does a whirlwind do? It scatters everything about. When the world, when a whirlwind comes, everything is displaced. Now the whirlwind is chaos. And our first encounter with God when he takes us apart may be chaos. When I gave my heart to the Lord, I was on my knees. And I felt when I said, yes, I will follow you, as though I had just exploded. And that all the pieces were in the air. And I prayed, when you, when you put them down, help me be intellectually wise. When you put them down. But it was like, it was like an explosion of me and then it all came back down and sanctification started for me out of the whirlwind scatters and changes everything God is going to blow everybody's theology away with his magnificence Job's although Job sees it better than his friends and certainly his friends but he starts off from 38.2 who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I better get my Bible here, haven't I? Forgotten, stuck it up here. Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Everybody 
is the answer. Everybody who hasn't been listening to God and through whom God is not speaking is darkening counsel by words without knowledge. This is true. Gird up thy loins now like a man, and I will have demand of thee, and answer thou me. You got questions? Boy, I've got questions. Here's some questions for you. Where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? And if we were talking now, as I wish we were face to face, I would say, what are your favorite texts here? What are your favorite rhetorical questions that God asks? Don't you love this one? Whereupon are the foundations fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together. What music that must have been. And all the sons of God shouted for joy. What music that must have been. Wonderful. A very good way to study the Bible is to go to the book of Job, and particularly these last chapters, and just think about one verse. Or who shall see what doors when it break forth? And I'm just jumping through here because we don't have time to take all of it. Where was, where's the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where's the place thereof? Knowest thou it, because thou wast born? That thou should take us to the boundary. Knowest thou it, because it was born? Or because the number of thy days is great? Have you figured things out because you've lived so long on the earth? He's not just talking to Job. He's talking to these comforters, these friends. You know what's going on? It goes on and on and on and on. The one I like best, I don't see here quickly. Uh, canst thou bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades? Or loose the bands of Orion? No telescopes then. How they know about this stuff? Maybe their eyes were better. Maybe the atmosphere was clearer. No light pollution around Jerusalem. I don't know. But they knew that the Pleiades and Orion were bound together somehow. Pleiades particularly. Wow. So then what happens? Well, oh, and then it goes on. You don't know the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth. Canst thou mark when the hinds do calve? You gonna know when it's their time? You don't know anything! What can you do? Gavest thou goodly wings over the peacock? Ever seen peacock wings? They're absolutely gorgeous. And as you turn them, they're, they're different kinds of light. What kind of a God of love? Still, yes, through the world of sin, you can still see it. The absolute it, phenomenal beauty, just in a little feather by a silly bird, which leaveth her eggs in the earth, warmeth them in dust, and forgetteth that a foot may crush them. They are beautiful and stupid. How come they're beautiful and stupid? She's hardened against her young ones as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without fear. Ah, there's fear again. 
She's not afraid for her for her young. What folly! It doesn't stop when they get older either. Our sons are both in their thirties. We pray for them daily <laughs> and worry and give them to the Lord again. You're never through being a parent, folks, unless you're a bad parent. She's not afraid for them. Because God hath deprived her of wisdom, neither is hath he imparted her to, to her understanding. Why? We don't know. Maybe it's sin. Maybe somehow it's better or was better before sin came that she be that careless. Or maybe she wasn't that careless. Maybe this is just another example of God's power being subverted by Satan. We don't know. It goes on and on and on and on. Moreover, Job, Job, the Lord answered Job 40. That is chapter 40. Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? <laughs> you going to tell God anything, buddy? You going you gonna to tell God how it is? Yes, you tell God how it is in your life because he wants you communicating with him. He knew it already, but it's important for him to talk. But are you going to instruct him about the wild goats or the peacock? No. You will learn from God by beholding. That's all. Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? Let him reprove God. Let him answer it. He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once I've spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will be, I will proceed no further. So, he's just said to God, Okay, God, you win. You're right, and I'm wrong. And you would think that would end it, but it doesn't. Verse 6, Then answered the Lord unto the Job out of the whirlwind, and said, Get up thy, gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee, and declare my... Wait a minute! Job has just given up. He's just said, Okay, you're right. You're right. Then I won't answer you. I will proceed no further. I will lay my hand on my mouth. And then Job, and God says, and another thing, what on earth is going on here? Job looks like he's just submitted and God hits him again. What? What's going on? Well, let's look at this answer. What's this answer like? And again, if I were facing the class, I would say, does this remind you of anybody? Okay, I am vile. I have nothing to say. You're right and I'm wrong. I won't say another word. What does that sound like to you? Anybody been 14 or 15? And your mother says, can't do it. Got to be back by 10. But mom, everybody else, no. You got to be back by 10. Okay, says the teenager. You're right. You're always right. I'm always wrong. I won't say anything. You win. 
that's not really acquiescence, is it? That's not really submission, is it? It's submission, but it's angry submission. God doesn't want angry submission. Christ in Gethsemane didn't say, okay, okay, you win, I'll die, I hope you're happy. Christ never said that. He said, your will be done. And was humble. So it's a problem. Job's answer is still self-centered. Being sarcastic. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm, I'm wrong, you're right. I'm always wrong. That's it. You win. That's another way of saying you're victimizing me. God cannot leave Job in that position because he loves him too much. He's got to get him through this. So he hits him again. Tough love. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? I Will thou condemn me that thou may be, mayst be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God? He goes on and says the same sorts of things again. Behold now behemoth. What is behemoth? Well, nobody knows. Somebody says, like many people say, that behemoth is a, an extinct ox or bull that was so huge and so untamed that in the Middle East nothing could be done about it. When this thing attacked, all you could do was try and fill them with arrows. They were tough. They're extinct now because the, the humans finally won. But that's at least one, one uh, theory. There are several theories about behemoth. Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency and array thyself with glory and beauty. Jesus said, consider the lilies. Solomon in all his glory and look as good as a lily. And God says, deck yourself. Make yourself look good. Nah. Behemoth. And it goes on. Bones are strong and all that. Lies under the shady trees. See, that's uh, could be a number of animals. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? They're not sure what Leviathan is either. The, tr the, the, the standard thing is whale, but there are people who think it's a crocodile or something else. We don't know. Something big. Something's associated with water. We don't know. And it goes on from there. And in fact, there are other choices. Here's one that's about... about uh, Leviathan, sea creature apparently. His scales are his pride. One is so near to the other that no air can come between them. They stick together. Out of his mouth goeth smoke as out of a seething pot or cauldron. Wait a minute, that can't be a whale. And it sure can't be a, a crocodile breathing fire what's going on well the, the theory the tradition of the fire breathing dragon is very old dragons in china as well as in the west breathe fire well if people existed alongside dinosaurs you got a dragon there Paleontologists will tell you that it didn't happen. There's no physical evidence for it. 
But here's something. Maybe they did. And if they did, what's this fire business? Well, is there an animal that produces fire now? And the answer is yes. There is one. Some miserable little beetle defends itself with fire at its, at its latter regions it can secrete methane gas just like you do but that little beetle has two little stones somehow picked up they are like flint and when it secretes this gas the little stones go and set it on fire. And so a predator comes along and he's about to eat the beetle and what he gets is a mouthful of fire. If beetles, why not dinosaurs? We don't know. There's no paleontology that tells us that, but it's not impossible. And if people lived with dinosaurs, actually did, then maybe there was one like that and its name has come down to us as Leviathan. Some of them, the brontosauruses were in water a lot, I guess. I don't know, I'll have to stop here because I'm no paleontologist, but uh, a, lot of, a lot of them did work, live in water a lot to hold them up, specific gravity. Anyway, all of this, darts are counted and upon the earth is not as like and all that. I created this and you haven't got a clue as to what happened as to how. 42, chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, this time Job's answer is different. Can you see how it's different? I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Yeah. What does that mean? It means that his last answer God perceived, as in fact we can perceive, that his answer was extorted sullenly, was given, not extorted. It was as though God was extorting an answer, and, and Job gives the answer that he thinks God wants to hear. But underneath, Job is not converted yet to this new idea. Conversion is an ongoing thing. We're converted to new ideas all the time. Who is this that hideth counsel without knowledge? I'm afraid he's talking about himself. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. When we see something changes in us, There was a great biologist named Agassiz. When you went to see him as a student, or to start being a student, he would take out a fish, put it down and say, let's take a look at this fish for a while and I'll come back and ask you what you see. He'd come back and the guy would say some things. He'd say, oh, you haven't been looking at the fish. You haven't been looking at the fish. Keep looking. Go back come back a few hours later. What'd you see? Guy talks about a few more things. No, that's good, but you're still not seeing the fish. 
comes back in the afternoon. How you doing? Well, a few more things. Come back tomorrow. Keep looking at that. Same fish. Little crummy looking fish. Okay. Next morning, guy, guy gets asleep on it. Think about the fish in his dreams. Come back the next day, looking at the fish some more. Around noon, Agassi came in and said, what do you see? And this time, the kid began to talk about the the wholeness of the system of the fish, the symmetry in that design, the symmetry that even goes inside. You know, all symmetry doesn't go inside. Our heart's in one place, and you'd think that we'll all be symmetrical, but it's not. Our, our liver is in one place, and it's all kind of... The symmetry doesn't... But in the fish, apparently, that particular fish, it's symmetrical. And it's all one unit, and it's all one thing, and it's all a bunch of parts. He was seeing the parts. He did not see how the parts integrated. That's one of the reasons why at Southern we try to integrate faith and learning. They're not separate. There's a wholeness there. And as teachers and as students, we need to celebrate that wholeness between, or that wholeness yeah, between the, the Word of God and this knowledge. It needs to be locked together and to blend until you don't see fingers. All you see is one thing. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. That has to be the testimony of every Christian. We hear witness. God answers prayer. And then one day, if we have the faith based on hearing other people's, and of course we're all born with a measure of faith, St. Paul says it, then we see it. And God answers our prayer. And we say to ourselves, He's there. He just, he just talked to me. He's talked to me once. One sentence. After a prayer, do something with me, I said. And the voice was not audible. It was, I guess, in my head, but it was very clear that it sure wasn't my voice. There was more love in that voice than any voice I've ever heard in my life. I'll know the voice of Jesus, and so will you when the time comes. God spoke to me. It isn't always audible. Never heard it again. But in his providence, he speaks to us. And when he does, when he answers a prayer that could have been accomplished no other way but prayer, when he says, walk ten feet that way, and you say, Lord, three feet away there's a wall. Walk. And so you walk, and in three feet the wall turns into a door where there was no door before. You say to yourself, Now mine eye seeth thee. As in verse 5 of 42. And then he says, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. C.S. Lewis says that when we think about ourselves, 
we should see ourselves as something small and fairly uninteresting. Yeah. Next to God. It's all about Him. Less and less about us. The wonderful prayer. The wonderful statement by John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. Yeah. True of me, true of you. The more God increases in me and the less me increases in me, well, let's say it right, I'm an English teacher, the less I, the more I diminish in me and let him take over my life, the better it's going to be. It's the way it is. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said unto Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee. Why? Because he's the one who started this thing off with that lousy satanic dream. My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. For thee hast not, thou, for, sorry, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Yeah. Now it's funny because Job in the middle has shown and by Elihu has messed up a little. He's been justifying himself. And yet in the beginning and now at the end it's true. Job is saying that which is right. Therefore take you now several bullocks and seven, seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves. Notice the, the perfect numbers a bird offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. Huh. Turns out all this time it's looked as though Job has been afflicted and they're going to help him. Actually, the friends have been the ones in trouble. Not Job. More than Job, anyway. Job now turns into the high priest. He's going to pray for them based on these burnt offerings, based on the humility of these friends in bringing these burnt offerings, because they're the ones who are wrong and they need to admit it. And he will pray for them. Oh boy. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did according as the Lord commanded them. They don't want to be bad people. They want to do God's will. They thought they were. No. They've had to sanctify a little bit too and learn too. And the Lord accepted Job. He is their substitute. They brought the stuff, but the Lord is accepting Job in their place. You see how he's a Christ figure? When we pray for our friends, intercessory prayers, we stand in for Christ, too. And if the Lord will accept us, he will accept them. Because we stand at least somewhat that day in the course of in the place of Christ. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. See what happens? He's come out of himself. He's come out of asking why and gone to how. How can this glorify God? 
And also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. But let's stop a minute. There you were in the village market. Remember that story I asked earlier? You're in the village market and there's the lady and you are tempted not to talk to her because she has just lost her entire family this morning and you don't know what on earth to say. And the halfway answer that you see in the, in, in the Iliad is you come to her wordlessly and if appropriate you hug her or if it's not quite appropriate you take her hand and weep with her. I did that recently. A friend of mine had a son who suicided. What can I tell him about that? What, what comfort can I give him? What can I say about the eternal future of that man who put the gun to his head? I can't say anything! I don't know! God said that I will never cry for myself or my own afflictions. I find myself crying more and more for others and for the glory of God. So here I am in tears thinking about my friend in front of everybody at the funeral and just hugged him and wept and he wept and I didn't say anything. Who says I've got the smarts to say anything? Who says that God wants me to say anything? The Iliad answer may be all there is in a given situation. If it's God-ordained, but I did say something else, it's true. And here's the second thing, you don't have to say or do theology for that lady. You say, I'm praying for you. And it's true, isn't it? You can pray then, dear Father, out of this awful thing bring forth good. And if it be your will, bring this family again together in the world made new. We don't know that it's God's will in a suicide case, do we? And it isn't our business to know. So, two answers the book of Job gives us. Embrace your friends. Embrace everybody. Which is what the Job's comforters do when they come and sit with him seven days and seven nights. They get that right. And now at the end, Job prays for them. And that prayer is effective. That's the answer. Embrace that person, pray with and for that person, and then leave it alone. No doing theology, no looking at a, at a, at a lady who's just lost her baby and say, uh, this baby, uh, uh, God took this baby because it was so sweet he had to have him with him. Of course, that's state of the dead problem anyway right away but you people say that kind of idiocy and it makes God a child murderer no don't do theology with a person who's terribly afflicted more than you may ever be embrace them one way or another weeping with them for them and then pray that's the answer in the book of Job it's a big answer silence Yes. Silence about what? Doing theology. Standing in the place of God. You're not. You're not God.
you can you can stand in his place if you embrace Christ looked at Lazarus and wept looked at the tomb of Lazarus before he raised him and wept weeping is fine he didn't weep for himself though did he sweated blood for us the answer is praise the Lord drop the plates praise the Lord I speak better than I do I'm giving you a truth I know but do not always follow God help me but it's the truth and it's a beautiful truth and it's the truth we need to cling to among many others the righteousness of Christ in us allow it then came there unto him all his brethren and his sister where have they been he's had to be alone and so Satan has kept them away but now that Satan is lost and Job has not cursed God they come as they would normally and all they that have been of his acquaintance and finally he is not alone anymore finally he has these other people this terrible thing Satan looks at you and says you're going to be alone and it's true many many Christians have died alone in prisons so on but never alone Christ with them as Christ was with the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace he was there no one more lie by Satan you'll be alone no I will not by God's grace I will not be alone no matter what my condition and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that had happened that the Lord had brought to him yeah the, the Lord did invite this didn't he for Job's good ultimately for the friends good ultimately for our good ultimately the blood of the martyrs waters the church and this man is a martyr though he did not spread uh, uh, shed his own blood but still he's a murderer and his story is a comfort to us and they all brought him money to start over so Job so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning and he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a thousand yoke did he or were there 6,001 6, or was there uh, 6,999 14,000 sheep 13,999 why would there have to be why couldn't it be exactly the number why not profit sharing again it's entirely possible that these are absolutely accurate numbers God said now you're going to have twice as much so so put your limits there okay and then God blessed him with that. But here's an interesting thing. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He gets twice as many animals but the same number of sons and daughters. Now why is that? Why didn't he get 14 sons and six daughters? How come? And here I like to pause for the class, but there's no class. There's just this little camera for me. And there's just a talking head for you. 
Why not 14 sons and Why didn't he double his numbers of sons and daughters? The answer is he did. It's a good illustration. He will see these sons and daughters, won't he? And the world made new. He'll have 14 sons and six daughters in the world made new. And so you have the names and so on. But he has to double the numbers of the animals here. Why? Because those animals, those same animals will not be resurrected. Animals are not resurrected. How do you explain that to a little boy? My son was four years old, walking near the house, dead birdie. He looked down at the dead birdie. And he said, Daddy, will that birdie be in heaven? Oh, no. And then I remembered what a great pastor said to me once. Roger Bothwell, who was down at GCA, told his son. He said, do you believe that Jesus will give you anything you need to make you happy in heaven? And his little son or daughter said yes. So I said that to my son. Do you believe that Jesus wants you happy in heaven? Yes. And would you be happier in heaven if that birdie were there? And he said yes. I said, then let's pray for the birdie right now. And ask that that particular birdie will be our little friend in heaven. We've repeated that prayer several times. We may wind up with a menagerie in the world made new. Intrinsically, animals do not live again. But if they're prayed for, why not? And why not comfort a child in ourselves by thinking so? I think there's no sin in it. So, but still, people say this is a pathetic ending. This isn't anything like as good an ending as the Iliad. Why? Goodness. This is pathetic. This is, you know what pathetic means? It means smarmily sentimental. Because they say, look at how it's a happy ending. The book of the book of, 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 of the Iliad ends with sorrow and a mature look at the sorrow of the world and all that. Yeah. This is pathetic. Look at this. Because uh, he gets everything back. And all the land, there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them inheritances among their brethren. And uh, after this lived Job 140 years. And he saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. They lived happily ever after. Yeah, but those kids are still dead. They didn't get resurrected. What about the kids? Don't they have a right to a long and happy life? Again, I like to pause for that when, it's the, when there's a conversation going on. And the answer is no. 
we have no right to live against as against God. We have a right to life as against our fellow man. Thus, when people talk about the fact that we are murdering 2,000 babies a day in this country, and the organization against that murder is called Right to Life, that's right, it's true. We do have a right to life as against a doctor who's going to drink, who's going to suck our brains out with a, with a, with a hose. Yes, no doctor has that right. But, and again, there's more to say about that, and I've opened up a can of worms, but leave it alone. The idea is that as against God, we have no right to live one more second that he wants us to. And these sons and daughters, yes, their human lives were cut short, but they have an infinity, an eternity of time to spend with Job and the family and other believers, and especially with Jesus, the Christ who made them. And if he's their friend, what would they give up to help witness for him? I hope you would give up a great deal. And of course this can be real. It's not fictional, live happily ever after. God is perfectly empowered to give gifts to his servants whom he will. And the parable of Jesus which says that those who worked only 15-20 minutes get the same reward that you do who worked all days. That isn't fair. Yes, it's an infinite. It's not just a coin. It's an infinite reward. Infinite reward for you. And that's enough. And if a few minutes of your life get cut off, then you have the hope of heaven afterwards. It's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. It's a grain of dust. A shabby world only made bearable, finally, by the hope of heaven. What a blessed book the book of Job is. How much more profound it is. And with one more story. We went to a conference among Seventh-day Adventist English teachers. And told them I was going to do the book of Job, a little bit of it, first chapter, telling why it should be thought of as nonfiction. And another teacher got up first and gave a talk on the book of Job, telling how it was actually a Greek tragedy, and and the ending, and it was the, the answer is that God is malevolent, but he can do anything he likes. This was a Seventh-day Adventist talking. And I got up and said rather the opposite, although I only talked about the first chapter or two. I remember the hatred in that man's eyes as he sat there listening to me. At one point I thought he might leap out of the chair and attack me. Job is not a Greek tragedy. Job is not anything like a the Iliad or the Odyssey. It is so far beyond, it is infinitely beyond. Takes the same question, why does a good man suffer? 
and deals with it. And the only way it can be dealt with in the context of the great controversy. And after the book of Job has spoken, there's nothing that a Greek epic can add. Can't even come close. And once again, we remember what Tertullian asked. What is Athens to do with Jerusalem? <laughs>